That smooth Christian jazz you're hearing means you've tuned in to Same Old Song, the lectionary podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm your co-host, Aaron Zimmerman. I'll be joined by Jacob Smith as each week we break down the lectionary readings for the upcoming Sunday to give you something to think about, and if you're a preacher, to give you something to preach about, and no matter who you are, to give you a connection to the never-changing message of God's grace for actual people like you. Unzip that monogrammed faux leather Bible carrying case and cover, pull up a chair, and let's dig in. Okay, hey Aaron, we are back, and uh, today is the uh, May the 4th be with you, if uh, people are listening right on time, but uh, how are you doing? <laughs> Well, and it's also time to get ready for Mother's Day, which is going to be weird and different this year, again, like everything. I'm doing okay, though. Uh, We are, uh, you know, just plugging away at trying to make life seem kind of normal. I keep thinking about historically, like, what are we going to look back on and say? Because this is obviously a time that's going to be very powerful in shaping people, children that are going through this, and you and me, preachers, and we're all going to look back one day, and I... I said I was thinking about that. I've even started journaling so I can, when my grandchildren in middle school ask me, what was it like in the days of the coronavirus, Grandpa? I can tell them, well, we were watching a lot of Netflix, which was this thing. (laughs) Anyways, but I'm doing okay. Thanks, Jacob. Two two funny stories in light of that. Uh, I have a good friend, uh, shout out Jane Grizzle, and uh, she was telling my wife that um, around the breakfast table, uh, her little daughter... Uh, mentioned, she goes. So, what what did you guys do when uh, you guys were um, like in a pandemic as kids? <laughs> and anyway, and so I just couldn't wrap his mind around that. Like this is rare. Uh, the other uh, thing was is that um, we have a parishioner and uh, uh, the they have teenage children, and she like she like at the dinner table looked over at her son and was like, "Are you going to miss like when we all get out of this all of like the wonderful family time that we've had and." And these things in the sun looked at her and goes, no, I miss baseball. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I think uh, we, I mean, it's going to be interesting to see how we look back on this. I, um, you know, I think I asked my daughter, what is, what's it like to be a seventh grader knowing that eventually you'll be a seventh grade, you know, history lesson. And so uh, this is a very u- unusual and unique time. But uh, as the Bible tells us, we're to be ready to preach the gospel in season and out. And so um, whatever season this is, the message remains the same. It's the same old song. Um, And that's because in a world we need some SOSs. So um, that's right. So give them to give give your people the help and the comfort that they need uh, through the preaching of the word. And uh, today, um, being the fifth Sunday of uh, uh, Easter, um, we don't focus on Mother's Day because Mother's Day can be extremely painful for a lot of people. Um, it can yep. be extremely alienating. We, you know, we can talk about the pastoral implications of that, um, you know, whatever. But uh, today we're looking at Acts chapter 7, 55 through 60, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 2 through 10, and John chapter 14, verses 1 through 14. Yep, and I think we've ranted about this in the past, how we one, did. one should not give out flowers on Mother's Day and not make a big deal of it. It's not a Christian holiday. 
And uh, the more you emphasize it, the more you alienate people who have difficult relationships with their mothers, no relationship with their mothers, no knowledge of who their mothers are, the inability to conceive, all sorts of things wrapped up in motherhood. It's not all, um, you know, Hallmark card moments. So tread lightly, if at all, and uh, focus on the fact that everybody needs to hear the gospel where they are a mother, not a mother a mother might be a mother anyways we all had a mother and so you want to keep it as universal as possible and uh so yeah in this acts chapter seven we're jumping around a little bit so you know last week was acts two so you have the just the church just starting out really happy communal gathering uh meeting regularly for prayer and worship and fellowship and uh the apostles teaching and now uh we skip ahead five chapters and the church has been through some stuff. You don't need to cover all of it, but they've uh, they've they've started to have sin creep back into the picture. In that there were fights among the Hebraic Christians versus the Greek Christians, and the Greek old ladies were getting the shaft in the distribution of food. The Hebrew ladies were getting more food in the church. The first soup kitchen was marred by sin. And uh, uh, now, uh, as a result, they had to appoint some Greek Christian leaders, including St. Stephen, who we now meet in Acts 7. St. Stephen, first deacon of the church, appointed and commissioned and ordained to be a servant so that the apostles could focus on teaching. And Stephen gets in hot water as this persecution is starting to break out. Stephen is in the process of being stoned because he uh, has given this long speech about how Jesus is the Messiah, and his hearers are not so keen on that one. And uh, he sees Jesus uh, and sees him standing at the right hand of God in this heavenly vision as he's about to die. And uh, he then has stones uh, brought down on him as he as he dies. So people aren't going to know, some people might not know the story, so you do want to do a little bit of that background to help people get connected, but what does it mean? What do we want to say about this? Well, I think uh, a couple of things. Um, first is, is that this is an important, you're absolutely right, this is an important section in the book of Acts. Remember the guy who wrote Acts is Luke, and, uh, and in the Great Commission in Luke's Gospel, Jesus tells them to take it to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. Yeah, go preach the Gospel. And, um, and so, um, and Acts is set up that way. And so last week was the beginning of the Jerusalem ministry. And here in Acts chapter 7, you see the beginning of the end of the Jerusalem ministry. And things are going to, the gospel is going to, and the rest of Acts is going to take place in Judea, Samaria, and then to the very ends of the earth. And so when we're being introduced here to a guy, Saul, who eventually becomes Paul, who uh, takes this gospel to the very ends of the earth. And so um, that's one of the reasons why we're introduced uh, to um, Paul in this passage is because there's a shift in uh, this particular section of Acts. So, but um, the other thing is you're absolutely right too. Um, Stephen is a deacon. And uh, one of the roles of the deacon is that they take the cares and the concerns of the uh, church, the message of the church, and take that to the world. You know what I mean? And then they bring the cares and the concerns of the world to the church. And, um, and sometimes that manifests in a soup kitchen and in people's needs. And in other times it manifests itself in evangelism and right teaching. And here you see uh, Stephen confronting essentially the profound misunderstanding of what uh, the religion of the day was all about. And, uh, and so he does. He preaches a harsh, 
harsh sermon, but it's the truth. It's the word. And, um, and it's all about Jesus. But here it is to people who think that they're doing it on their own. The gospel comes across as bad news. Um, and so what do they naturally do? Well, they plug their ears. And the fact is, is that you and I uh, plugged our ears as well. But uh, by the grace of God goes Jesus for us and uh, opened our ears, though, to hear that word. And this is yeah. what happens with, um, with Saul, is that he's moved by this. And, or he's not, he's moved to go kill more Christians. But God's got a plan <laughs> here. And uh, this, is, this is the big point. When things look dark... When things look hopeless, maybe some of you didn't get your PPP loan or whatever it is, um, God is at work and he's moving and he's doing something because Jesus is already at the right hand of the Father. So you uh, can rest assured that no matter, that's how I would preach this, no matter how bleak it gets, no matter how, um, how far the fingers are in the ears of those who are hearing it, uh, you can trust that God is at work because Jesus is is at the right hand of the Father. That's right. I, I think there's uh, a couple other things that one might mention or could talk about here. Really? I How think would you so. top that? I no. can't <laughs> top it. I'm just adding other things that are alongside, not above, just a lot, maybe even below. But just some just other dressing things. it up a bit. I'm no. just dressing it so up I a bit. So I think one of the things, you know, this is kind of uh, building on what you said about the fact that in the beginning of Acts, Luke records Jesus' words about going with the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, and the ends of the earth, and that you see this happen in the book of Acts, but you see it happen uh, through fits and starts and failures and successes and ups and downs. It's not a perfect thing. And one of the things that I think is fascinating about Acts 7 is that up until this point, the apostles have stayed in Jerusalem, and they've not really gone out anywhere, a little bit in Judea maybe. But... It's here that because of the stoning of Stephen and what happens right after this, this massive persecution breaks out and all because of what happens to Stephen, all the disciples flee Jerusalem and because of suffering and hardship are forced to take the gospel out into more places. So what I think I love about this passage is that the reason there are deacons is because there were sinners in the church who were showing favoritism at the distribution of food to widows. And because there was that sin, they had to appoint deacons, including Stephen. Then you have here the fact that the disciples were sinful in that they didn't really initiate on their own taking the gospel outside of Jerusalem. They were stuck in their own rut, used to their own way of doing ministry. I'm sure they planned to get out there to the ends of the earth soon. But, you know, let's stay here in Jerusalem in a culture, and a context, and a language that's familiar for a little while. Uh, and then maybe in a year or two we'll... we'll we got to build the base. but uh, So they kind of are operating more of a uh, possibly a fear mentality. And it's not until this persecution breaks out. So there's all kinds of just relatively normal, frail humanity in this. And because of that, God still works through the church and ends up through this difficult time of persecution, taking the gospel lots of places. And again, I think in the coronavirus times, because of the struggles that we're seeing in the church, you and I have both seen people that have been disconnected from our churches for a long time now because the online ministry that we're, we're forced to uh, jump into are coming back. And people that we don't know are coming to church and finding our services. And parishioners are telling family members about church services. And I mean, I was just talking today to a, a person in the uh, diocese of Texas who's a priest of a small church that on a Sunday they get, you know, maybe 12 people 
But since they moved to online services, they've got 20 or 30 people joining them on Sundays. So it's interesting how the suffering produces, uh, can in God's time produce an expansion of the gospel. So that's something else I would say, maybe, but definitely the God working through a sinful church to continue the mission and ministry, even in spite of the people. The other final thing I would say here, or two things you could mention, Paul is being prepped to hear from Christ as he's watching the example of St. Stephen. And Stephen's amazing statement at the end of this passage where he says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them, which is just this incredibly Christian thing to say. Yeah. The world is not like that. The world is, mm-hmm. you know, Lord, bring judgment down on these people that are hurting me. You don't give yeah. me what I want, well, I'm going to stick it to you. And Stephen here says this very Christ-like thing. Of course, Jesus at his death, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. It's basically the same thing. And Paul, watching this, probably was a little bit disgusted by it. But totally, obviously, totally. obviously, that's it why made he got papers to kill more of them. Right, yeah, exactly. But so, but you know, you can. It's funny how somebody can be totally resistant to something, but at the same time, that resistance brings them closer in contact to it. Mm-hmm. And uh, and this is you know this is the good shepherd doing his work, drawing Paul, who does not want to be drawn into ministry. So those yeah, are the things. That, the other things I would add. Yeah, and I think that that's a beautiful point. And the also the other lesson that we learn from Saul here too is that uh, your resistance to God's call on your life um, uh, is not going to have the final word. You know, if it, was up to, if it was up to Saul, he would have taken those papers and killed everyone in Damascus. Um, but um, no, God isn't going to allow your resistance to have the final say. So some of these people, well, I don't know if I really, I'm sorry. Uh. Uh, God's in charge, you're not. And so, um, and that's good news. And, uh, you know, when he's, as Stephen Paulson once said, when he's called you his bride, you might as well shave your legs and put on some lipstick because um, he's coming to get you. So uh, that is, uh, that's good news. So um, That homespun wisdom from that's a right. very educated man, the Lutheran scholar, Dr. Stephen Paulson. Yeah. Uh, so, but let's take a look at First Peter chapter 2, verses yeah. 2 through 10. Let's do it. Uh, all right. So this, again, kind of jumping around a little bit, this is, you know, the lectionary is good because it keeps you reading these books of the Bible you might not normally read, but it's also kind of, you know, you jump around, so you have to uh, sometimes help your people understand what's going on. You have to kind of explain, because we were on Feast Peter 1, now in 1 Peter 2. Uh, So this passage, again, Peter is writing to Christians who are in Asia, who are probably mostly Gentile churches. And he's writing them because they're undergoing some sort of suffering. And he's using this extended metaphor about stones. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, last Sunday was Good Shepherd, so it was all about kind of shepherd and sheep imagery. Now we got this imagery of stones, and uh, Jesus er, and Peter is saying that we are living stones being built into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, definitely using images Mm -hmm. of the temple in Jerusalem. Yeah, that's uh, that would have been a very important temple because you know a lot of the very first Christians would have been, you know, Jews or they would have been God fears like Gentiles who had become, uh, you know, um, Jewish and uh, and so there's like all of this tangible imagery and like so what are you talking about? Just like I mean a a Bible study and a little bread and wine like that's it. Like what about this big temple? What about all of these things? You know, we need to be doing more. Like is this it? And uh, that's kind of the concern of this early, this, that was one of the major concerns of this early church. 
um, across the board, whether it was the Apostle Paul, Peter working with them, was the idea that, man, I want something like tangible and earthy, like like they got going on in Jerusalem. I want to go right. back to that. Right. And um, and uh, and Peter's like, yo, yo, there's something better here. Do you think there's he said yo, yo? I do. I, he, I heard he was from New York, originally Williamsburg. So, but uh, um, I uh, I think he probably was just like, slow you down, everybody. Uh, because this is actually what it's all about. Um, and so, and he brings and he uses the temple, this thing that they probably all had seen at least once or maybe really wanted to see and heard about its magnificence. And uh, I believe this was probably written before uh, the destruction of the temple. But anyway, it's this, and he gives them another image and says, the cornerstone, what the temple, the temple was just a foreshadow of what this is actually all about. Yeah. Um, a new temple. What Israel was actually just a foreshadow about. Uh, this is what it's really about. Um, what the priesthood was just a foreshadow of. This is what it's really about. And so when you see it in that light, this becomes a real encouraging word. Well, I thought Christianity was about this. You know, I do my best and God will do the rest. Surely I've got to do something for God. No, no, no. This is what it's all about. Christ for you. Amen. Well, I think, you know, one of the other things that is important to note in this in this text is that these Christians to whom Peter was writing were all part of a culture where if you wanted to have a connection with any sort of spiritual being, it really had to be at a building. Uh, for the Jews, obviously, it was the temple in Jerusalem. That's where God's glory actually dwelled. Uh, but if you were a Gentile Christian, like the ones that Peter was writing— in all these cities, there would have been lots of temples, statues, places to go to offer sacrifices to these divine beings. Uh, and if you read, for example, in Acts chapter 19, you'll read about this riot in Ephesus where uh, Paul is criticized and Christians are criticized because they're somehow threatening this great temple to the goddess Artemis or Diana in Ephesus. And uh, one of the businesses there was buying little temples to put them in your house, little silver temples where you could offer sacrifices to Artemis at home, you know, if you couldn't make it to, to church, uh, to, to Greek church. So uh, this so this idea, whether you're Jewish and you're thinking about the temple in Jerusalem or whether you're a, a Gentile and you're thinking about all these different temples to uh, Greco-Roman deities, they all saw themselves as going into temples to offer sacrifices to a god so that that god would be happy with them. And what Peter is saying here, this incredible thing, is that we are the temple. Uh, and I think it's important to note that, you know, we're not just individual solitary bricks. We're all built together into this giant structure. Again, putting in our minds the fact that Christians are not supposed to be doing this thing on their own, that we are part of this big structure we're part of a big community. A bunch of sheep last week, a bunch of stones this week, but we're all together. And just last week, like Jesus was the shepherd of the sheep today, he's this cornerstone. He holds us all together. And uh, so there's this image of us, by God's grace, being this, as you said, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, uh, to proclaim the mighty acts of him who called us out of darkness into light, as it says in verse 9. We are... Uh, and, and I think this last verse of the passage is so powerful, the grace that's contained in it. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. It's just mm -hmm. this phenomenal picture of, of we, are, we are this holy priesthood, this royal priesthood, this holy nation. 
but because of God's choosing to love the unlovable and to justify the ungodly. This is what he does. That's beautiful. Absolutely. Um, did you did you want to say anything about... Um, uh, I, I think that's pretty good. No, so, say it. What is it? What is it? Um, well, I, I don't want to leave any stones unturned. <laughs> oh, that's excellent. Uh, spiritual sacrifices. You oh, know, yeah. Spiritual sacrifices. I do want to say something a little bit about that uh, because that oftentimes gets misunderstood as if we're doing something for God. But what a spiritual sacrifice is, is in Pauline lingo, this would be like a living sacrifice as well. This is what goes on in view of what God has already done for you. This is what happens by the fact that you've already been made a living stone mm -hmm. and you've been built into a spiritual house. And so the spiritual sacrifices are sharing the gospel with your neighbor, um, helping your neighbor out, not because it makes God happy and keeps you in the temple, but this is what uh, God is doing through this living temple that's not simply in Jerusalem, but is now all over the world called his church with Christ as its chief cornerstone. That's all I wanted to say. And I think that's a good word. And, a great, and I think, you know, this whole passage, by the way, is also ground zero for this idea about the priesthood of all believers and that yes. you and I, Jake, although we are ordained presbyters in the Church of uh, Christ, um, we are not some special class of extra holy people, especially you, Jake. I'm looking at you. But uh, <laughs> that we are, we are set apart for a certain office role in the Church. Uh, but that all Christians are called to this priestly role uh, as as we because we have been uh, made holy, able to stand before God and offer yep. sacrifices of our life uh, to God, sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving, or spiritual sacrifices, living sacrifices, all this all this that language that we get here and elsewhere in the New Testament. So, just want to underline that a little bit. That's beautiful. Well, I do and then all day uh, long. John 14, yeah. take it away. Well, you know, this is just um, this is one of the central uh, this is one of the main gospel readings in uh, an Episcopal funeral service, um, and uh, and really it gets right at the heart of the matter. This is taking place and uh, uh, during the Last Supper, and Jesus is with the twelve, and he is giving them basically uh, the final instructions and uh, a great comfort before they face death, and um, and so and it begins just. Basically, with one of the most powerful passages, I am the truth, the way, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father but through me. And I've seen a lot of um, churches cut that out. You know, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then they'll leave off and nobody comes to the Father but through me. Things like that, which is horrible. But this is, passage has been used as like an evangelistic bludgeon throughout the ages. Mm -hmm. um, um, but it's actually meant to be a source of great comfort. Great comfort. And um, maybe if you want to speak to the comfort there, Aaron. Yeah, I mean, so the reason it's comfortable is because if we just hear, I am the way, the truth, and the life, what that sounds like is that Jesus is an example. And if we follow his example, maybe we'll get to the good place. Uh, when he says, nobody comes to the Father but through me, the reason that's such a wonderful, comforting, merciful verse is because it's saying, I'm not the way because you have to live exactly like me and follow my example so that God will like you. Uh, so be perfect, everybody. Be nice, and then you'll get a gold star. Uh, what he's saying is, I am making a way for you. I am 
I'm laying down my life for you. I'm making, I'm making a gate where there's no gate, a door where there's no door. I am making a way for you to come in the fullness of the love of the Father. Um, because right. the other ways, not through Jesus, is going to be a self-reliant way um, where you're trying to do it on your own strength, on your own power, which, as we know from human experience, just doesn't work. So just to say I'm the way, the truth, and life is basically like saying... I'm a really perfect Instagram influencer, and you should make your life exactly like mine. Good luck, which leaves everybody despairing because no one can do that. Uh, mm -hmm. Instead, he's saying, I'm doing it for you. I am the way um, uh, to the Father because I offer myself as a sacrifice to take away the sins of the whole world. Yeah. A couple of things uh, that stick out to me right here immediately, too, is, is that first, he says, in my Father's house, there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would not have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. Um, and oftentimes we can misunderstand uh, and we can focus on the place um, and uh, as if that's the importance there. Uh, but no, it's the one who's gone to prepare it for you. Um, I preached this passage a couple of years ago and I remember um, I always use kind of my grandparents' home as an illustration. They lived in this town called Newton, Iowa. And every summer when I was a little kid, we would go and, you know, I mean, it was just a fun place, a big house you could hide, a big yard. Um, you know, there was just all of these comforts, smell of sugar cookies. Um, it was just a great, great place. Um, but it was, if I went there today, it wouldn't be the same. You know what I mean? Because it's not about the place. It was about the people who were in the place. It was, uh, and this is this is what makes the place so spectacular. Is the one who greets you there, Jesus, the one who's made the bed, who's <laughs> baked the eternal sugar cookies, and uh, and you know puts on uh, puts on the cartoons. And so um, that is um, that's that's really how you understand it. The place is only valuable because of the person who's there. And the one who's there is the one who's laid his life down to be the way for you, to lay down his life to be the truth for you, and to lay down um, his life to be life for you. So that's the first thing I would say on that. And then the other thing is, is that Philip is like, you know, I mean, they're all kind of tossed about here. They're like, what in God's name are you talking about? And that's how I feel a lot of the times when I read John's yeah. gospel too. Um, and... Uh, um, no, really, I get every word. But anyway, um, but Philip says, you know, Lord, Lord, show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you all this time, mm. Philip, and you still don't know me? Whoever's seen me has seen the Father. Now this, John does a lot of references back to kind of Genesis in this image. And if you remember in the prologue of Genesis, um, you know, uh, where God's creating everything, um, he ends with on the seventh day resting. And there's this kind of image about the way, there's this idea about the way God works and the way God is, humanity being that image bearer of God should reflect that. And of course, we see that that image was completely marred when Adam fell, Adam and Eve fell in Genesis chapter 3. And so with that fall has come a loss of a knowledge of who God is. And so we're always trying to fashion God in our own image we're as opposed to reflecting his image to the world. This is part of the curse. And Jesus, as the second Adam, has come in and broke the mold and said, listen, um, as the representative of humanity, the way it should be, you want to know what God's like? Yeah. Look exactly at me and uh, hear my words. 
Um, and this is what uh, Jesus is getting at here. Um, everybody, like, have you ever wondered what God's like in quarantine? Have you ever wondered what God's like when you're all by yourself? Well, wonder no longer because he's revealed himself in the person and work of his son, Jesus, who's the way, the truth, and life for you. That's right. And, I always, and people have so many really jacked up images of God in their head. And I think this is where you want to direct folks to say, you want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus and look at the compassion he shows. Look at the grace he shows. Look at the care and tenderness he shows. This is what God is like. He tells us that this is, if you want to know what it's like, look at me. And I mean, and you get this other great picture of Jesus here where he says, he doesn't say, I go to prepare a place for you. I hope you can find it. He says, I go and prepare this for you. I will come again and will take you to myself. I will pick you up outside the school at four o'clock and I will have (laughs) a happy meal waiting for you and we will get there together. (laughs) And uh, it's just this beautiful picture of going to prepare the place and coming to get you to take you there. You know, we talk all the time about how preachers so often want to make the gospel about stuff you have to do. Whereas, as Fleming Rutledge reminds us all the time, that the, the Bible is about what God has done for us. And as a preacher, we always want to remind people what mm-hmm. God has done for them and is doing for them. And here he is saying, not only does he go to prepare a place for you, and again, so many preachers are all about heaven someplace far away up there, and you gotta you got to find your way there. Uh, Jesus is saying he's actually up there getting it ready. He's fluffing the pillows. He's making the bed. He's getting the coffee ready. And he's he's up there preparing the place for you. And, you know, I'm speaking in these kind of domestic terms, but obviously it's so much more glorious and incredible. We can't even begin to imagine what it's like. But what we can know is that God is saying, I am preparing a place for you. And I am not waiting up there with my arms crossed, hoping you can find the address. I'm going to come and I'm going to bring you. And he's talking very clearly in a way about the the death and resurrection that he's about to undergo, because this is all this conversation at the Last Supper. But he's also talking for all Christians. One final thing, the amazing thing about this passage, mm. one of the amazing things is that it comes right after he tells Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And he, and he uh, knows all the disciples. And man, so just the well, fact that he knows that these beautiful. are not like Eagle Scouts. These are not acolytes at Calvary St. George's who are all, you know, ethically pure and morally perfect. Mm. These are, this is Peter who's about to deny Jesus. And even so, Jesus Mm. says, I go to prepare a place for you, which is just many. So he's just, he's doing all the heavy lifting. That's powerful. And uh, the, uh, and then that really begins to kind of shed light on like, also when he says, very truly, I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do, well, to back up, he goes, but if you do not, so I'm in the father and the father's in me, but if you do not then believe me because of the works themselves. So you begin to really see here what the works of Jesus were all about. The um, the raising of the dead, the giving the sight to the blind, the giving hearing to the deaf, curing the lame, all of these things. They were to confirm Jesus' teaching about who he said he was, that he was the Son of God, you know, that he is the very reflection. So that's the point. But then he goes, very truly, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do, and in fact, will do greater works than these. Um, and this is a powerful thing, too, is, a, well, so, you know, what is this? Is this Kenneth Copeland ministry now faith. all over the place? You know, what what is going, yeah, what is going on here? Um, well, this is the thing. Um, you see it in the Acts of the Apostles. The miracles that they did confirmed the teaching that Jesus had raised, Jesus had risen from the dead and God had made him Lord of all things. 
And, uh, and they took it to the very edge of the Roman Empire. And listen, we've got Aaron Zimmerman there in Waco, Texas, and we have you in Sugarland, Texas, and we you have you in Missouri, and we have you over in you know Albany, New York, and you over in Los Angeles. And man, every time you preach the word, eyes are opened. The deaf finally hear. Those folks plug in their ears as Stephen was stoned last week, you know. Um, the... Uh, the, the lame are getting up and finally walking and sharing the good news. The dead are being raised to life every time you baptize someone as they're transferred from the kingdom of Amen. darkness into the kingdom of light. And p- prisoners are set free every time you give them the tangible bread and wine and you say, listen, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. So do not think although it may appear extremely ordinary, but never forget it's hidden right now. What you are doing is supernatural and extraordinary. And uh, take joy in that. Um, there, this It's exciting to preach the Word of God. It's exciting to handle these minis- mysteries and give them to desperate people who need them. Mm. Uh, greater works are you doing. This is why I love Jacob Smith, ladies and gentlemen. If you live in New York and the church opens back up, go to Cal St. G, because uh, he is, uh, Jake, you, you you get so impassioned, and I love it, because this is the real deal. This is life and death, and this is what God has done for us. And uh, I feel like I just got a dose of the ghost, so thank you very much. <laughs> well, anyway, God bless you all, and, uh, and afterwards, you know, um, we'll see you next week. So keep on preaching, everybody. Bye. Blessings. Bye. Somebody's looking. Somebody cares. Somebody wonders what you're doing today. You know we crucified him, buried him, but three days later, well, the stone got rolled away. And yes, Thanks for listening to Same Old Song, and we hope you found some nuggets that will be helpful either in your preaching or just in your life. If you liked what you heard, we would love it if you could leave a rating or review on iTunes. Dave's all will be sad if you don't. We'd like to thank the Narrativo Group for audio production. Keep that Bible by your bedside, ready to rock and roll.